Our ancestors' diets were rich in the essential vitamins, minerals, and phytonutrients needed for optimal function. But today, thanks to declining soil quality, a growing toxic burden, and other challenges in the modern world, most of us are not getting enough of these critical nutrients. That's why I created Adapt Naturals. It's a supplement line based on the principles of evolutionary biology and modern research that closes the nutrient gap so you can feel and perform your best. Unlike most supplements that contain cheap synthetic ingredients your body can't absorb, we use clinician-grade bioavailable ingredients to make a real and noticeable difference. Our products are manufactured in a CGMP facility without gluten or GMOs, and they're third-party tested to validate ingredients and confirm they're free of contaminants like heavy metals. We have a full range of products from the most advanced multivitamin and phytonutrient formula on the market to a blend of eight organic superfood mushrooms, including reishi, chaga, and lion's mane, to a one-of-a-kind fish oil with bioavailable forms of curcumin and black seed oil. Our newest product is BioVail Colostrum Plus, a blend of cold-processed colostrum from grass-fed cows, lactoferrin, and beta-glucan. These ingredients nourish the microbiome, fortify the gut, skin, and other barriers to keep pathogens, toxins, and other foreign substances out, fine-tune immunity to prevent hyperactive or inappropriate responses, and support the gut and immune system in numerous other ways. BioVail Colostrum Plus provides a powerful yet natural and safe way to protect against seasonal threats, balance and calm the immune response, and rebuild a healthy gut ecosystem. Head to AdaptNaturals.com to learn more and start feeling and performing your best. Hey everybody, Chris Kresser here. Welcome to another episode of Revolution Health Radio. This week, I'm very excited to welcome Dr. Katie Deming as my guest. She is a radiation oncologist, inventor, and TEDx speaker who's transcending the boundaries of conventional and integrative medicine to evolve the current paradigm of disease prevention, treatment, and healing. She blends conventional medicine with holistic practices and ancient wisdom to address the hidden roots of disease and activate the body's innate capacity to heal. This was a fascinating conversation that spanned everything from integrative and holistic approaches to what causes cancer and how to treat it, to the placebo and nocebo effect, to the role of water, both the structure and form of water in cancer and disease etiology, to uh, how little progress we've made in the, in the quote, war against cancer, and how that perspective and way of framing it perhaps even contributes to its perpetuation. Um, also the role of fear and trauma and other uh, emotional states in the pathogenesis of disease and cancer and so many other topics. It was really a wide ranging conversation and depending on your perspective might require an open mind um, to take in some of what she uh, shares, but I, I really appreciated that about it. It's there's so much that we can appreciate about the contribution of allopathic Western medicine, and yet there are many questions that it hasn't answered. And so for for me, it's important to keep an open mind and continue to explore avenues, even if they're outside of that paradigm of, of Western allopathic medicine. So I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Let's dive in. Dr. Katie Deming, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Welcome. Thank you, Chris. It's my pleasure to be here. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation because I think 
in the conventional medical world or in the medical world in general, let's say, there are a lot of areas of medicine where I think, you know, functional and integrative approaches have made significant headway uh, and are talked about fairly regularly. Um, it seems to me that while there certainly has been some progress made in, in the world of cancer there, it's it's been perhaps slower than we might hope. And, you know, I, I think that there, there's, I'm sure we'll talk about this, but the, part of it is that, you know, it's a potentially very serious and life-threatening diagnosis. And in the face of that, both doctors and patients tend to understandably revert to something that they feel is maybe safer or, or more proven or something like that. Whereas if you're just trying to treat toenail fungus or something like that, you might be a, a little more willing to use an alternative uh, treatment and experiment with that because your your life is not at stake. So yeah, I'm excited about this conversation and I would love to just understand a little bit more about your background and how you expanded beyond the borders of your conventional oncology training and came to um, this current place that you're in now. Yeah, sure. So I am a radiation oncologist. That's my training. I trained at Duke University and practiced radiation oncology for 20 years, 16 years of practice and four years of training in radiation oncology. And I also was a healthcare leader within cancer care. So designed and led a large scale um, cancer program end to end for one of the largest healthcare organizations in the United States. And so that was my background. And I believed in the system and really believed in what I was doing in Western medicine. But in 2020, I actually was at I would say the height of my career, I had just been nominated to be the national medical director for all of cancer care for this organization and had made it up to like the number two spot. Another woman who was a researcher ended up um, receiving the position. But immediately after that interview process, I had an experience. It was much like what you would describe as a near-death experience. And after that, I knew what I was doing was wrong. Like I just knew everything that I had been taught and how I had been trained to heal was not true healing. And the hard part about that experience was that I didn't know what the right way was. I just knew what wasn't right. You know, I, and so it was a process, but, um, I took some time to, you know, make the decision and ultimately ended up leaving Western medicine in the summer of 2022 to explore, like, how is it that we heal cancer? And, and in medical school, I had been trained all about illness, you know, we're taught the organs of the body, you know, in the systems from a pathologic standpoint. So everything that we learn is from a dysfunction of the system rather than what's the optimal function of the system. And so that's really what I spent my time from 2020 until now. I've been studying everything I can about what creates actual healing in the body, what creates optimal health, because I figured I understood the disease process really well, or at least I thought I did. But 
I wanted to understand like, how does healing occur and how do we create optimal health in the body? And so I've spent the past couple of years really diving into that. And that is what now informs my practice is that the interesting thing is, is that I don't think cancer is that different from other illnesses. In fact, they all stem from similar issues that we are doing as a society that we think is okay, but is in truth eroding our health. And cancer is just one of the conditions that results from this way of life that we've adopted. And um, so really focusing on that. And of course, to like to care for people with cancer, but I'm realizing that the the principles that I that I've learned are universal and really can help people heal from many different things. So what do you think um, if you've looked into this in any depth, the, the sort of split is be, with genetic and environmental causes with cancer. And, you know, this differs from disease to disease. Some diseases or conditions like schizophrenia, for example, are known to have a very significant genetic contribution. doesn't mean that if you have the genes, you'll develop it, but, you know, they've done studies of identical twins and they find, you know, there are ways of determining what the relative contribution of genes is. I know, you know, just overall, the statistics I've seen for chronic illness are that 90% of chronic illness is determined by environment rather than genes. But then within that overall umbrella, it differs quite a bit from condition to condition. And I've wondered about this with cancer because, of course, we have situations where very young children get cancer and they haven't been alive for long enough to really necessarily be able to blame lifestyle factors although in some cases it could be something like heavy metal toxicity or other you know other factors but it's hard to reconcile that with like a very young child um getting cancer so i'm curious about your take on that like the relative contribution of environment and genes with cancer yeah well the way that we're trained in oncology is to think that it all is related to mutations in the DNA, which would make you think that the percentage would be quite high of cancers that are genetically related. But I'll give the example from my specialty. So I specialized in breast cancer when I was um, working in oncology. And we know that in breast cancer, only five to 10% of breast cancers are genetically related. The other 90%, we say, are sporadic, which means we have no idea what causes them. And this is actually part of what was disconcerting for me is that how could 90% of the time we say we have no idea why you have cancer? And that, but yet we're told that this is all related to mutations in the DNA. And so it's similar to what you just described. The 90% are related to environmental factors and really how we're living. You know, it's not just toxins in our environment, it's what we're eating, it's how we're choosing to live. Also, emotional trauma. There are studies that show the ACE study is an example. I'm not sure if, if you've ever spoke about the ACE study on your show, but basically this shows that children who have emotional trauma, they have a higher risk of developing illness. So our environment is, is a lot more than just maybe the food that we eat or the toxic chemicals in our environment. So 90% is environmental and only 10% is genetic, but you brought up an interesting question about the babies or children and on the surface level, it seems difficult to reconcile like 
they haven't been alive long enough to have accumulated environmental damage, but they have, they've been in the mother's womb who is experiencing potentially emotional trauma, stress, you know, all of the things, what she's eating. And even if she's eating well during the pregnancy, the things that she's been exposed to in her life are passed to the baby as well. And so I think that we can look at that and see that even the babies or children who have cancer, that it's also likely related to our environment. We just think of it as them outside the womb, but their whole life now, you know, up until the time that they're born has been an exposure. Well, there's also the contribution of epigenetics to consider. So we know that epigenetic modifications can be passed down at least two generations, possibly longer than that. So even going back to grandma and grandpa um, could have been exposed to something or had significant you know, trauma, emotional, psychological trauma that altered the genetic, the gene expression. So it's not that the underlying genes themselves changed, but the expression of, of those genes changed in a way that affected the, the child, of course, you know, e- even without any of these other influences that we're talking about. So that, that's, to me, that's something that plausibly you know, answers that question too. Like it's because it's something that you know, unifies or pulls together genes and environmental factors in a, in a heritable fashion, in a way that can be just passed down from one generation to the next. Absolutely. So in your exploration of all of this and, you know, in, integrating uh, science with ancient wisdom, sp- you know, spirituality, uh, emotional and psychological factors, I know that you have become fascinated by the contribution of water or and particularly the, the structure and form of water uh, in our cells, the quality of water that we consume, and, and then even we might say the consciousness of water within our bodies. And like I, I know that you have mentioned uh, what's her name? Veda Austin's work, uh, which is quite, quite fascinating to me. So I want to talk a little bit about that, but before we go on to that, what's your take on the type C personality and the, you know, the contribution of that, like this idea for listeners who aren't familiar, you know, everyone's heard of type A personality, this like driven to, to achieve and succeed and kind of at all costs and the, you know, very high level of stress and sympathetic arousal. Type C is often referred to as somebody who tends to hold their emotions inside and not express them and ha- or have difficulty expressing them, difficulty asking for help. Do you think there's anything to that? Have you, like both in terms of the scientific literature, any research that's been done on that or in your experience as an oncologist, have you noticed a pattern there? Yeah. Well, I think that this is an interesting conversation because this is actually what I see in my current practice. I can't say from my practice before that I knew that this was an issue, but what we see commonly is that people who have cancer are suppressing emotions and pushing down what they really think, what they really believe and have you know, problems with boundaries and and basically are the ones who are the pleasers. They're doing what everyone wants them to do. And particularly in my breast cancer practice, I saw a lot of that. I just didn't know 
you know, why is that that these women tend to be the ones who are pushing down their own needs and, and their own emotions? But now, as I understand the role of emotions in illness better, it makes sense because basically they're pushing down and then they're holding these emotions, which are a frequency in their body that ultimately are affecting the functioning of their cells. And so for sure, this is part of um, the, I think all illness is related to our emotional well-being as well. And if you look at the radical remission data from Kelly Turner, so these are you know, she basically studies people who have cured themselves of their illness without what we would consider appropriate treatment. And what they found is that there are nine factors that these people do in common. And so it's not causation. So we don't know that these are the things that cause them to cure themselves, but they're common among all of these people. And two of the things that are related to emotions, and one is releasing trapped emotions or emotions related to past trauma. And the other is fostering or facilitating more positive emotions and helping people move out of negative emotional states. And so people who are suppressing their emotions, even though on the surface, it may look like they're coping well, they're basically carrying that in their body and it has a physical imprint and effect. Yeah, I, I think there's, I mean, I, I've had several conversations with patients uh, in my own practice. I, of course, don't treat cancer, but I've seen many patients who have cancer that we're providing support for, you know, adjunctive support for, and patients who, through their own research and, and even sometimes just self-reflection and awareness, have identified, you know, that pattern in themselves. Um, I think the, the challenging thing for a lot of these folks, and, and even for me as a clinician, just sitting with them is walking the line between recognizing that and taking ownership of it and taking responsibility for it and sliding into blame, guilt, and shame and self-recrimination and, and this idea of like, I'm, I, this is my fault, I made myself sick, you know, there's, I, I'm to blame for this. And, and that then, of course, can interfere with uh, the recovery process because it, it just perpetuates the cycle. So I've, I've found that it's a very delicate um, line to tread in, in discussing that with patients and even introducing that as a concept because people, understandably, their defenses can, you know, go right up. Um, with any suggestion that it was, you know, they, they might have played a role, you know, unconsciously or unwittingly in, in um, that disease process. So how, how have you approached that with patients? Or have you noticed that same, same thing? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So this is one of the things that I've noticed as I talk about emotions is people worry that I'm saying that they cause their illness and absolutely not. That is not what I'm saying, or I think any other practitioner, it's just recognizing that our emotions are related to our physical health and that we're all exposed to emotional trauma. If you look at the world around us, just even let's just look at the past few years since 2020 as a collective, we've experienced a, a trauma, an emotional trauma from everything that we've been through. And so it's not that something's wrong with you, it's that you're a human being and humans are emotional beings. And so, and the way that we cope with emotions is 
basically ruled by our subconscious. It were programmed between ages zero and eight, our subconscious mind is with the things that we see. And we don't know good from bad in the subconscious mind. It basically just records it. And then we're programmed with those patterns. And what happens is, is that you may not even be aware that you're doing some of these things emotionally, like suppressing or, um, you know, basically holding negative emotions. And so a lot of the work that I do with clients around emotional trauma or helping with suppressed emotions is actually subconscious work. And so I have a, a couple providers who do different types of subconscious work. Psych K is one of them, who Bruce Lipton talks a lot about that particular modality. And that can be quite effective. And so I think part of this is just normalizing. Like there's nothing wrong with you if you, you know, all of us have emotional trauma, emotional things that can be healed. But I, I see it as an opportunity, like, there's more than just the physical stuff. There's there's these other pieces that if you're willing to go there, we can impact your physical health in ways that you may not have thought possible and that there are ways to do it without having to talk and bring up the trauma and really re-traumatize people. So that's the way that I'm approaching it in my practice, but you're absolutely right that it can be a tricky line um, to walk. And I think my my approach is really just having compassion and saying this is just part of the human experience for all of us. Yeah, absolutely. I think those are two ways that I look at it as well. And one is this this word responsibility is is interesting if you break it down. It means the ability to respond. Whereas I think responsibility, the, the general connotation is like, it's my fault. If someone says I'm responsible for this, it's like my fault, my obligation. But really, the root of the word is ability to respond. So it means acknowledging what is and then responding in an appropriate way in that moment, um, which doesn't need to include blame and shame and, and all, of, all of the other stuff that, that tends to go along with it. The other part is just recognizing, as you, I think, just alluded to, that we're, we're none of us exist in a vacuum we're part of a system and that system influences us in many different ways and and some of which we're in, we we have control over and many of which we don't um from you know all of our early the in utero influences that you mentioned before like what was happening with mom when we were in 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 the womb to our very early childhood influences to environmental exposures to toxins, the, the food we were fed when we were growing up, uh, even how we learn to process our own emotions generally comes from that early childhood developmental environment and is not something that we really particularly had a say in or control over, whether or not we were victims of abuse, emotional, psychological, physical, sexual, whatever. When you put all that together, <laughs> Again, it doesn't mean that we can't take responsibility for for what happened and respond to it in an appropriate way, but it does mean we're not to blame uh, for all of those influences and how they might have impacted our health. So, I, I you know, in conversations like this, it's important to me to you know put this all out there because I I want people to understand that we're where we're coming from um, and, and not the place of 
yeah, if you have cancer, it's your fault because you did something wrong. <laughs> I mean, that it's all unfortunately all too easy to hear that, but that's not at all what we're saying. So let's talk about water. <laughs> let's talk about water. Uh, I think a lot of people will be surprised if they're not familiar with, you know, Veda Austin's work or similar work um, that this is entering into the conversation at this point around cancer. So I'm, re I'm, I'm really excited to, because I don't think I've ever talked about it on my show. So I'm, I'm looking forward oh, to it. Oh, I love it. that. If you've listened to the show for a while, you know that I'm a super active guy. Depending on the time of year, I'm either skiing, mountain biking, hiking, backpacking, surfing, or lifting weights on most days of the week. I also live in a really dry climate at high elevation. For these reasons, I pay a lot of attention to hydration. I've learned the hard way what happens when I get dehydrated, and I know how important hydration is to overall health. But hydration isn't just about drinking water. It's about water plus electrolytes. This is where Element comes in. It's a combination of electrolytes like sodium, potassium, and magnesium in easy-to-use individual packets that you just add right to your water bottle. And unlike most electrolyte products on the market, Element is free of sugar and artificial junk. I drink Element every day and it's made a huge difference in how I feel. Even with my training and profession, I don't think I realized how often I was dehydrated before I made Element part of my daily routine. If you'd like to try it, the folks at Element have an exclusive offer for my podcast listeners. You can get a free sample pack with one of each of the eight flavors Element sells when you purchase any Element product. This is perfect for anyone who wants to try all of the flavors or who wants to introduce a friend to Element. Just go to cresser.co slash element, that's L-M-N-T, to place an order and take advantage of this offer. Paleo Valley's beef sticks are definitely one of my favorite snacks. They're unlike anything else on the market. They're made from 100% grass-fed and grass-finished beef and organic spices, and they are naturally fermented, which gives them this really amazing flavor. In fact, they were recently voted in Paleo Magazine as one of the top snacks of the year. One reason I love Paleo Valley is that they're committed to making the highest quality whole food products that are free of junk ingredients. They're compact and easy to take on the go, especially when I'm out in the mountains and away from civilization. Go to paleovalley.com slash chris and use the code CRESSER15 to get 15% off. Okay, so I'm going to back up just a little bit and kind of explain how I came across it so that then you can understand how this has become really an important part of my work. But when I left conventional medicine and I was looking into all these different ways of healing and how to create optimal health in the body, I realized that any approach to healing and restoring health in the body really required four components. You needed the physical part, which we know this is what most of us think you need to do, which is what you're eating, you know, what you're doing with your body, what you're putting in it. But the other parts were that you needed to have emotional and mental and spiritual components to the healing. And that became just really clear to me that it needed to be this holistic approach. But I didn't totally understand why? Like, I mean, I understand that we're human beings and we're not just machines. So it made sense that you needed these other parts, but there wasn't like a science that could help me unify this and understand why we needed these different components. And um, so I'll tell you a story and I think you'll appreciate this because you're a mountain biker, right? Mm -hmm. Is that, yeah. Okay. Yep. So I, um, 
part of me leaving Western medicine actually resulted in my divorce because my husband wasn't on board with that. And that's part of why it took me a couple of years to make that decision. But anyway, recently as dating a gentleman who had been a professional cyclist, he's now retired and he had heart failure when he was 50 and he was still racing actually at the time when he had heart failure and he the month before he was diagnosed with heart failure, he had won the state championship for Georgia as a master, as a age 35 and older, and also in the pro one, two category. And then a month later, he was diagnosed with heart failure to the point where his ejection fraction was 15%, which for your listeners, a person with an ejection fraction of 15% usually can't get out of bed and walk to the bathroom and basically could die at any moment, let alone walking to the mailbox. And I, for the life of me, could not understand how could someone be racing a bike and winning professional races in heart failure at this level? And I just like couldn't reconcile it in my brain. And I came across Tom Cowan. Um, I had seen like a keynote of his. And so I went to his website just to look at what else he had. And Dr. Tom Cowan is a medical doctor who, you know, is quite well known in kind of in the COVID era. But when I went to his website, I what caught my attention is that he had a book called Human Heart, Cosmic Heart. And the first thing that was written about the book was that the heart is not a pump. And I was like, oh my goodness, I got to read this because maybe it explains why Steve could have been cycling and racing at this high level. And the only symptom that he had was maybe a little bit of shortness of breath when he pushed himself past hundred percent, which who wouldn't be short of breath, right? But no other symptoms. And um, so as I read this book, what Dr. Cowan describes is that the circulation of the blood is not related to the heart as a pumping mechanism, but rather related to the fourth phase of water. And the fourth phase of water is something that has been described by Professor Jerry Pollack out of the University of Washington. And basically, I'll just describe the experiment to give your listeners a concept of this. But basically, you can imagine a beaker of water, like so just like a big bucket of water. And in the bucket of water, they had like a tube. So imagine like a test tube that's open on either side. So water can flow through it. And it's just basically they suspended this tube in the water. And what they found was, is that the water started moving through the tube, like all, you know, there's just like a whole bucket full of water, but in this tube, the water started moving in one direction. And then they took the bucket and they put the bucket in a lead box. And when they put in the lead box, like the water didn't flow. And then they brought it out. And again, this water's flowing and they're like, what is going on here? There's no energy source that we can see. You know, it's not like a battery attached to this water. Why is it moving in one direction? And basically Dr. Pollock's work, his whole life work is, is really about this, what he describes as the fourth phase of water. And what's happening is, is that on that test tube, the test tube is a hydrophilic surface, which means it's just water loving. Hydrophilic means water loving. And basically a lining of structured water, which is more like a crystalline form of water, lines that test tube and it actually creates a charge differential between the rest of the water. And so then the water starts moving. And basically, his research explains that we think of three phases of water. So liquid, which um, just regular water that we would think about, ice as a solid, 
and then steam as um, a vapor. But what he describes is that there's this fourth phase of water that occurs and it has really unique properties and it's more like a crystalline form. It's almost like a jello-like form. And in Dr. Cowan's book, the heart book that I was describing, the human heart, cosmic heart, in there, Tom Cowan explains how this is how our blood moves through the circulatory system, that it's actually a differential between this fourth phase of water, structured water that lines the blood vessels, and then the you know, blood that basically um, is flowing as a liquid. And there's this charge differential that is allowing the blood to flow through our circulatory system. And actually this makes so much sense physiologically, although it goes against everything that I had been taught, but, you know, we think about the heart, if the heart was really responsible for pumping the blood through the body, then basically, you know, the heart pumps the blood through the aorta, you know, into the arteries and then to the capillaries where basically it slows down and almost stops to release oxygen into the tissues and absorb CO2 and then come back up to the heart. But if the heart is the pump, how does it go from stopped in the capillaries to moving again back up to the heart? And so I, when I started to understand this, the fourth phase of water, it made so much sense from a physiologic standpoint. And it also explained this phenomenon that I was seeing that didn't make any sense to me um, in Steve, who basically, you know, was functioning at such a high level with heart failure. And now I was like, okay, I can see how that could happen because the water can still allow the blood to move through the circulatory system. And Tom Cowan also has another book that's called Cancer and the New Biology of Water. And that's where I started to put it together with cancer and the water. But basically what he describes is that in the cells of our body, our bodies create this structured water within our cells. And that is the optimal structure of the water. And when the water is structured, it basically allows for the proper functioning of our cells. And a very healthy cell would be one that is has this structured water within it. And this ties actually to metabolism. So it turns out that ATP is related to the structuring of the water in our cells. And when you have mitochondria that aren't functioning properly, which basically everyone's talking about mitochondria now, right? So mitochondria are really the foundation of our health, but mitochondria are responsible for creating the ATP and the ATP is responsible for actually the structuring of the water in our cells. And when we don't have enough ATP production, either because the mitochondria aren't functioning properly, or we don't have the proper nutrients, or we have toxins in our cells. Basically, the, the structured water starts to diminish in the cell, and the cells become hard. They lose their charge, which normally cells are, you know, have a nice negative charge across them. And this is really what cancer is. And those cells also start using a different form of metabolism from the normal oxidative phosphorylation used by the mitochondria and they start doing anaerobic glycolysis. And that's why sugar, cancer is basically pulling sugar from everywhere it can because it literally can only use glucose in anaerobic glycolysis. And also anaerobic glycolysis creates much less, like I think one ninth of the ATP of the normal oxidative phosphorylation. So then it's basically pulling it, it becomes a parasite on the body. And 
when I read this, I was like, this makes so much sense for everything that I know physiologically about cancer. And then I started thinking, well, what about the emotional component? What about the mental component? And this is where, you know, Veda Austin's work comes in. So Veda Austin does um, water crystallography and posts beautiful photos on her Instagram and other sites of basically showing that consciousness or our thoughts can be recorded in the water. The water has memory and is alive. And so our thoughts are important. And this is why the mental component of healing is so important because our thoughts impact the ability of the water to structure. And if we're holding thoughts that are negative, it basically can disrupt that structure of the water in its optimal form. Can you give some examples of, of Veda's work? Because it, it's really quite fascinating and um, I think it'll help people understand, you know, what sure. you're talking about a little bit more, like what, yeah. what she actually does with water and, and then what the results are. Yeah. So recently I just saw on her site, there was a, she basically takes water and freezes it to see the crystallography of, of what the structure of the water looks like. But one of the posts that I saw recently was there was a pregnant woman who was about to get an ultrasound of her baby. And so she took a sip of water from the, a glass and then Veda basically froze that water. And what Veda posted was a photo of the crystallography of the water alongside the ultrasound photo of the woman's baby. And basically they looked the same. That this woman, the water that she drank from before having that ultrasound and thinking about her baby created a picture of the baby in the water. So like, that's one example. Another one was her son was, um, you know, there's, I think actually another piece of body of work that's important to mention in this is Emoto's work. So Emoto was a Japanese scientist who studied the effects of emotions on water. And one of the things that he found was if you express loving words on water, it would show a beautiful, like, you know, snowflake like pattern, snowflake like pattern. So beautiful crystallography. But if you said hateful things to the water, it showed, you know, very, very disorganized structure. And he also found that classical music showed a beautiful crystalline structure, whereas heavy metal created this distorted structure. And so Veda, her son, in this post, she talks about how her son was um, saying, gosh, like, why doesn't water... I, does water not like me because it doesn't, it only likes classical music. And she said, well, I don't know that that's true. So let's see. So he played a song by, I think it was Tupac and I can't remember what it was, but it was a rap song and it was something about, I see. And then they froze the water after playing the water, you know, playing the song with the water. And basically the crystallography showed an eye. Yeah. Amazing. I know she's also done, um, she's put a Petri dish of water next to her bed at night and then frozen it in the morning to find pictures in the water of of images from dreams that she's had. So this is probably a good point to pause and say, you know, a lot of what we're talking about exists on outside of the realm of current Western, you know, paradigm of understanding science, which 
I have deep respect for, I imagine you do as well from your conventional training that, you know, there's a lot of things to admire about allopathic Western science and a lot of things it gets right and a lot of contributions that it's made. You know, I often say if I get hit by a bus, I definitely want to be taken to the hospital. You know, like Lasix, you know, surgery is pretty amazing. Um, You know, we're starting to, the advances that have, you know, antibiotics and other things, of course, have, have not been without their downsides and negative consequences. But I think it's very safe to say that, you know, Western allopathic medicine has improved our lives in, in numerous ways. And, and, and that peer-reviewed published research is a valuable piece of that equation, you know, verifying um, results and doing it in that particular way. And for me personally, I imagine for you as well, given the transition that you've made, it doesn't answer all questions. And there are lots of things that we don't understand through that lens or that that lens has not yet been able to explain. And I like to just keep an open mind about that, like, would, and say, huh, that's interesting. <laughs> like, I, that doesn't really fit into my current existing mental map or paradigm. So either that, par- that map is not correct yet or not complete, or there's, you know, perhaps this, other, this thing that I'm looking about, there's nothing to it. But I'm just curious how you have reconciled that in your own journey uh, as you've made this transition from exclusively or mostly allopathic, you know, radiation oncologist to someone who's looking at the structure of water. And, you know, I imagine it sounds like your, your, your former husband was, was one, but others who were not able to make that transition with you. Um, so I'm just curious how you, you know, how you are working with that, how you look at that. Yeah. Well, I think this comes back to that experience that I had in 2020, where when, you know, people who have near-death experiences and see what's beyond this often come back with very different perspectives. And there are two things that I really had conviction of when I, you know, experienced that. The first one was that I knew there was something wrong. And I had had a sense, like I had this like dis- ease about my practice for a couple of years where I was like, something's just not quite right. And I was frustrated because I felt like there's a parable of a river where, you know, this, in this story, they described there's a village along the river. And one day the villagers saw one body flowing, floating in the river. And so they, you know, quickly went out and rescued it. And then the next day there were two bodies. And so then they, you know, went out and they rescued those. And every day there was like double the amount of bodies. And so this village by the river became very organized and they had like rescue teams and all of these boats and this very complicated um, system of rescuing. And the village elders were praising the village people for doing such a good job rescuing these um people out of the river. And I heard this at a meditation retreat, probably in like 2016 or something. And I was like, this is Western medicine. We're like just lifting people out of the river, but what is happening upstream? And also why aren't we helping them when they get them onto dry land to make sure they don't fall in again? Right. And so I had this sense that something was wrong, but then that experience basically made me realize something really is wrong. I don't know what the solution is, but the other thing is, and this comes from that experience, but also having been with, you know, I've cared for 5,000 patients in my career and, you know, 
about 40% of my practice was palliative, which means people die. And so I've been around a lot of death. And I know that when people get close to the end, they say things like, I wish I had just been true to who I was. I wish I had listened to that voice inside. And so both from my experience of crossing over, but then also from having been around so much death, I knew that I would be regret at the end of my life if I didn't figure out what this was about and listen to that voice inside of me that was saying, you know, something's not right here. And so I'm a deeply curious person. And since leaving Western medicine, I've just decided, you know what, I don't know what's right but I want to learn everything that I can. And so I'm wide open in exploring all things because I have nothing to defend. And I actually think my move of, of really leaving Western medicine completely was a gift because it allowed me to be open to other possibilities that I probably wouldn't have been able to see if I was really tied into that structure and my you know safety and security relied on it. And reputation and, you know, the way that you're perceived amongst your peers and all of that is absolutely, you know, I, I know Tom Cowan, um, and he's been on the show and I've known him for many years. We, I lived in the Bay Area and he was actually our family physician for a number of years. Um, and I saw him. I mean, he was always certainly on the periphery at least as an anthroposophic physician that's not a typical conventional uh, paradigm but when he retired from as an md and uh, that's when he was really able to start exploring you know some of his passions and interests in a much deeper and more public way i think because he he no longer had to be concerned about the medical board and how they would view his, you know, his, his ideas and theories. And um, so he was, he became free of, of that structure and it allowed him to really branch out in a different way. And I've seen that in a, in a lot of different cases. So, yeah, I love, I love that. I mean, I, myself, I, I, interestingly enough, was initially trained uh, in, in the alternative medical world and then, and then, and, but also had a deep appreciation for, you know, Western science and what it could contribute. But I've never lost, of course, that um, broader understanding and, and worldview of like, in fact, and when I was in school, I wrote my um, graduate paper on the placebo effect. <laughs> which was absolutely fascinating and still to this day is one of my my biggest interests which i i now call the self-healing effect because i think placebo is a derogatory term that's used by drug companies to you know basically to um diminish the the true impact that just the the power of belief and and relationship can can bring in a clinical interaction so i'm I'm curious how that plays in for you, like, you know, as someone who's worked with cancer patients on through both the conventional lens and now this different lens, what have you noticed as far as the contribution of even the relationship between the clinician and the patient and then the patient's own belief system and, you know, f perhaps the, on their fears, their their, you know, their trauma, like what you already kind of alluded to, like the, even the word cancer can be such 
and the diagnosis itself can be have such a powerful effect. And I read studies when I was writing that paper on the, the nocebo <laughs> effect that, that cancer, the cancer diagnosis itself can have. And I'll remember one, I'll just say it briefly. And I'm not going to get it perfectly right, so it's been many years now, but it was a guy who was initially, he was diagnosed, I think it was with cancer, and he, you know, was, was doing poorly. Then the doctor called him up a few weeks later and said, oh, no, actually, the, I'm so sorry. Those were not your results. <laughs> Those were not your results. We made a mistake. You actually don't have cancer. And then he recovered completely. It was like no longer sick, didn't have any of the signs or symptoms of cancer. And then something like, you know, a few months passed and then they, they figured out that, oh, oops, it actually was his results. They called him back, said, you do have cancer. In fact, I'm so sorry. Then he, all the symptoms returned and, um, you know, I think he ended up dying. So it, it's almost unbelievable in a way if you're coming, looking at it from that conventional allopathic lens, but it, it always stayed with me as a perhaps extreme um, example of the placebo and nocebo effect or just the contribution of our beliefs to our physical and physiological state. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I think that that story is in Bruce Lipton's book, Biology of Belief, because that sounds very familiar. And I think that I read it there as well. But no, absolutely what people believe about their illness or just what they believe about their bodies in general impact what is manifested and, and um, seen clinically. So in this, I saw my practice and this was part of, you know, I started my Born to Heal podcast back in 2020. And at first I was just published or putting out stuff like this, you know, things that I was seeing in my clinic, but I'll just give you an example of where there was a woman, this was early in my career and she had head and neck cancer, which was the worst type of radiation that we can give chemo and radiation for head and neck cancer is brutal. And so the, you know, consoles like 90 minutes or 60 minutes of it, I'm going over side effects associated with the treatment. And she was so sweet. She was like, you know, Dr. Deming, I know that you believe all of that. And I know that that's what you see with most of your patients, but I'm telling you, that's not going to happen to me. And I was like, oh, you know, you're so sweet. As long as you heard me, that's fine. If you want to believe that, you know, whatever. And I was just kind of thinking in my mind, like maybe she's in denial. And then she went on to basically de defy every expectation that I had about her during her treatment. And, you know, the things that I would have expected, she would have those side effects, but she would have them like three weeks later than I would have expected them to occur in the treatment. And they would be way less. And she just had this amazing, amazing experience with her radiation that should have been horrific. And she saw it as a gift the whole time. And she kept telling me, you know, God's with me and you work for God. And she just had this belief that was unshakable. And I would never, never forget her. And then I would have patients who had like stage zero breast cancer and really should have had no side effects associated with the treatment. And when they come in, they would tell me I'm the one who has all the bad side effects. I'm always in that 1% that's going to have the things that you don't expect. Sure enough, they would be having worse side effects than someone who was having way worse treatment. And so I saw this clinically that what people believed 
you know, and were convicted about their bodies and how their bodies were going to respond to the treatments actually bore out in their clinical results. So that I definitely saw. And then, you know, for a long time as a radiation oncologist, I didn't ever love radiation. I went into it because I love the patients and I love that intimate interaction of being with people at a time that's so real because cancer is so scary and it's so intimate. And for a long time, I was like, gosh, you know, I don't really love radiation, but I realized that what I was doing for the patients was way more than the treatment that I was giving. And that there are studies that show this, that patients who like their hospitalists have better results, have, you know, shorter hospital stays, less complications and better outcomes. And also there was a recent one with female surgeons and, you know, I'm not dissing my male, sur my male colleagues, but women tend to have like a little bit more nurturing effect. And there was a study there about women surgeons having better outcomes, even though technically the skill level is the same. And I think that there is this piece of connecting and trusting your doctor. And also what I believe, you know, this is also in the placebo data that what the doctor believes about what's going to happen for the patient can impact the outcomes. There are studies that show that if the doctor thought that the treatment was going to work, even if it was a placebo, the patient had an effect. And so I always remember that when I'm with clients to say what I believe and how I make them feel is just as important as any intervention we do. Yeah, so true. I'm familiar with those studies and um, the, the work of Ted Kapchuk, who has a fascinating career. He was um, originally trained in Chinese medicine, and then he ended up at Harvard doing placebo research, and he's done a lot of the great work uh, in this area. There are, there are a few studies that stand out to me. One is the, there were, you've probably heard of this study. It was a um, it was a sham surgery uh, study of people with severe osteoarthritis, and they separated them into two groups. And they, in one group, they performed the actual surgery. In the other group, they just did the incision and did some lavage, washed it out, closed it up, and compared the results of, of those two groups. And the, they were basically the same. <laughs> and the, the group that didn't have the surgery had almost identical results. And they did, I think there was like a 60 minutes or some kind of TV program showing this guy who could literally barely walk before he had the surgery. And then he's like outside playing basketball after the surgery. Well, but it wasn't a surgery. It was just the incision and the lavage that he received. I've seen, there was a study that to your recent point, to your last point where all they did was you know, they split patients into two groups. It was the same doctor or doctors. And for one group, they asked the doctor to just be very curt. You know, just go in the room, only say a few words, not be very friendly or warm. You know, just be staring down at the clipboard. This was before EHRs and computers, which is probably even worse now. Um, and not really engage or make a connection with the patient at all. And then the next, you know, the other group, uh, the doctor was very warm and, and um, you know, really made an effort to look, make eye contact and connect with the patient. And then they, they studied, they followed the patients for some period of time. And guess what? No big surprise. The patients who had the warm and kind interaction with 
doctors fared much better than the patients who had the CURT interaction. And then the last one, which is, again, almost unbelievable if you don't understand, you know, if you haven't seen all of the other research, was out of Japan, and it was a group of teenage or high school students that had a pretty severe um, poison ivy allergy. And they blindfolded them, and they rubbed one arm with poison ivy and the other arm with like an oak leaf or something totally benign. But they told, they, they told them the opposite. So they said, you know, we're rubbing this arm with, with oak leaf and it was actually poison ivy. And then they told them the, the opposite on the other arm. And many of them broke out on the arm that was rubbed with the oak leaf and didn't break out on the arm that was rubbed with poison ivy. So you can't look at, and these are all, by the way, published peer-reviewed studies that you can find in the scientific literature. So this is an area, this placebo research for me, that was fascinating because it, it sort of like intersected. You know, these were all published in credible peer-reviewed journals using the, you know, gold standard scientific methods of the day, and yet they point to something that cannot really fully be explained using the allopathic paradigm. Yeah. No, it's so powerful. Our mind is so powerful. And the, there are tons of these studies. And what's so interesting for me is that we were never taught it. I was never taught any of this in medical school. You know, and so it, it is fascinating when you dive into it and you realize the power. And also it's so empowering, you know, that we have more power than we think over our physical body. And I think that that's a story of hope. Absolutely. And I love, this is that Ted Kapchuk rebranded the placebo effect as the self-healing effect exactly for that reason. His position is, wait a second, you know, the drug companies are busy trying to eliminate placebo because if their drug doesn't outperform placebo, they've just wasted millions of dollars and don't get approval. So for them, placebo is a dirty word and a pejorative term and not something to be studied or celebrated or, you know, learn, learn how to harness. Ted Kapchuk's work was, you know, after studying this for a long time, he's, he's like, we should be doing everything we can to learn how to harness and amplify and expand this and make use of it in clinical settings. And then he started doing open label placebo studies where essentially people would be told they were getting the placebo and they still improved. <laughs> and, and that was, that was like, I think, I mean, we still don't even really fully understand why that is, but, but even just the kind interaction and the participation in the study and being told, like, told, I think what it is, my guess is that being told that they're on the placebo and they, and they still get better, they start to believe in themselves and their own capacity for, for self-healing. So I, I, I mean, I think there's so much to this in, in, in your work and looking at this is like, that's the message of hope is like, you know, kind of going back to how we started with blame and shame and guilt is like, no, we, it's not about that. It's about recognizing our capacity to respond in a, in a powerful way and to have, and to influence the trajectory of our, of our life or our death. You know, in some cases that's, that, that might be what happens, but the trajectory can look really different toward death with that kind of mentality than it does with the, the mentality of like, there's, I'm a victim and there's nothing I can do. Yeah. Well, and, 
you know, I think of cancer, any illness is really a crisis and crisis in Chinese is two symbols together. And the first symbol is danger, which makes sense. But the second symbol is opportunity. And I think illness is just an opportunity to do something different, to create a different result. And I think I love that you talk about these things on your podcast, because the more people that understand this and know this can take their power back and really recognize that I'm an agent of my own healing. You know, healing comes from within. And um, yeah, I love that. Great. Well, thank you so much for this conversation. It's been fascinating. I know the listeners are going to get a lot out of it. Where can they learn more about your, your work and what you're up to? Sure. So I'm relaunching my podcast, which is Born to Heal with Dr. Katie Deming on Feb- February 13th, and actually will be starting with sharing my journey of leaving Western medicine. And then my first um, interview is with Dr. Pollock, who did this research, and also Tom Cowan, and I have been also talking, and he will be on my podcast as well. So my podcast is a place, and then I'm also hosting a workshop on understanding water and its influence on our healing on March 5th. You can find out more information about that at katiedeming.com. And that's K-A-T-I-E-D-E-M-I-N-G, right? That's right. All right. Well, thanks again, Katie. Appreciate it. And thanks for the great work you're doing in the world. Yeah, thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. That's the end of this episode of Revolution Health Radio. If you appreciate the show and want to help me create a healthier and happier world, please head over to iTunes and leave us a review. They really do make a difference. If you'd like to ask a question for me to answer on a future episode, you can do that at chriscresser.com slash podcast question. You can also leave a suggestion for someone you'd like me to interview there. If you're on social media, you can follow me at twitter.com slash chriscresser or facebook.com slash chriscresserlac. I post a lot of articles and research that I do throughout the week there that never makes it to the blog or podcast, so it's a great way to stay abreast of the latest developments. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you next time.